Welcome to the Mama Needs a Moment podcast. We're your hosts, Cindy and Chrissy, co-founders of Her Health Collective. We are two moms obsessed with changing the ideals and expectations of motherhood. Every other week, we dive into the topics that matter to moms most, answering your most pressing questions as we learn from top-notch experts, swap stories, tap into our creative sides, and advocate for the causes that moms truly care about. All while hanging with your mom friends. We are so glad you're here. Let's dive in. We have a very special guest today and someone I have been grateful to be able to listen to for a while now. We are being joined by Jess Meyer, co-host of Only You, a one and done podcast. Together with her husband, Pierce, Jess works hard to try to bring humor, understanding, and a deep well of empathy to the topic of being one and done. Jess shares a lot about her journey and how they made the decision to be a one and done family. She attacks the stigma of raising an only child and explores how solid parenting is the best way to ensure a happy childhood for our kids. This is such an important episode for everyone to listen to with so many valuable insights, but it is an especially important episode if you are considering being a one and done family or have a one and done family in your life. Let's dive in. These are our get to know you questions, and we just want you to throw out whatever comes to mind first. Fill in the blank. Motherhood is. Powerful. Oh, damn. <laughs> Can it you is. say more? Can you say more? Well, what I didn't realize before becoming a mother is that it changes fundamentally who you are. It changes how you feel about your own childhood. It brings the past and the future together in this incredible new way of just waking up every single day. It's very powerful. I had no idea. I mean, they always say things are going to change and you assume it's like, well, yeah, I'll have to get up a little earlier and there'll be diapers everywhere. But no, it changed me fundamentally as a human person. And I think it's the most powerful thing that's ever happened to me. So true. I have goosebumps from your answer, actually. (laughs) I mean, you're right. And totally 100%. So many of our answers to this question are it's hard or it's complicated, which it is. And and we won't detract from that, but I appreciate the the sentiment behind you saying it's powerful. It is. I was acknowledging that. I was thinking either powerful or empowering, but I figured they're kind of the same and powerful. I mean, not even the fact that it changed me fundamentally, but also I'm in charge of a human person. Like that's pretty powerful too. I have to watch myself. I have to watch my own reactions to things, what's triggering me. I have to make sure that I'm staying up on my own mental health. And that gives me a lot of power over this person's life because their entire worldview is going to be shaped by what I do every day. I mean, that's, that's a lot of power and you can either use it for good or you can kind of not recognize how much power you truly have. Yeah. And and that's a daily thing, right? Just to to make that acknowledgement and decision. What's the the cleanest room in your house? Not this one. (laughs) (laughs) The little square we see is clean. (laughs) Thanks. Yeah. It's a wall. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to say probably Penny's room. It's the one room in the house that like everything has a place to go and she doesn't really play in there that much. Like we try not to keep most of her toys in there. We keep them in the living room. I've been told my living room looks like a daycare, just fine. (laughs) But yeah, her room, we try to keep it pretty peaceful so that she can sleep in there. So I'd say that one stays the cleanest, the longest. Oh, Jess, you just wait. I know, right? (laughs) Oh my gosh. I talked to Christy the most about this. I'm like, I can't get the girls to clean their room. They just won't do it. We have an eight and a half and 11 year old. Okay. So they're kind of in charge of their own space now and they save a lot Mm. and they don't know where to put it. Well, I'm kind of a messy person to be honest with you. And I don't really expect her to be the the neat one in the family. So we're just going to have to see how that goes. (laughs) <laughs> does Penny participate in cleaning in your house? Does she have well, tasks? She's that just she does? turned two and I could probably get her to help out, you know, Hey Penny, do you want to help me, you know, clean this stuff up? But she really sees it as a game. 
So I don't think she really connects it to cleaning just yet. And I'm cool with that. I don't need to put any adult responsibilities on her. It's kind of up to me to keep the house tidy if I choose. And I do want it to be tidy. Like I want her to appreciate the space around her and I want her to be able to focus on what she's doing. So I don't, I don't really ask her to, unless it's like fun, let's put it in this bucket or whatever. Mm Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I hear all, so many stories of like starting young and having them help out around the house. And and I kind of, my daughter just turned four mm. and I kind of feel like I missed the boat on that a little bit, I guess. <laughs> I don't <laughs> so I'm, I'm just kind of scurrying around behind <laughs> her, picking up all the things. <laughs> yeah, she has her whole life to keep a house tidy or learn how to clean or whatever. I, I'm really into the idea and I have a two-year-old, right? So like, I'm not the one, I'm not the expert on child raising, but I like the idea of keeping them young for as long as possible. You know, she'll learn how to be an adult when she's an adult, but for now, let's focus on being a kid, you know, play use your imagination, have fun. I'll be here to clean up after you. That's kind of my job right now. I love it. I love it so much. What's bringing your life sanity right now? I recently stopped breastfeeding and we did that for two years. I recently posted on our page about how it wasn't the best experience starting out. I had a hard time. She was a preemie, so I pumped at the beginning. And then after that, it was It was my way of coping with the pandemic. I thought that by breastfeeding her, I was giving her every opportunity to have like the immunity boosting principles that come with breastfeeding. And I think for me, it was something that was giving me, I don't know, it was like the little bit of control that I had over COVID. And I finally was able to drop the rope, as they say, and I was just done. I was ready to be done and I eat whatever I want. And my body is mine and I do not have to open up my blouse in public and I can drink wine before bedtime if I choose. And it is extremely freeing and I can't even explain the amount of relief that it has given me. <laughs> That's a big day. That's a big yeah. day to arrive. And totally. two years is, is amazing. Congratulations. That, Thank I mean, you. that's a, it's a wonderful thing that you accomplished your body accomplished it. that. Yeah. Yeah. I would say if it weren't for the pandemic, I probably would have been done at one. Uh, My goal was one, but I just decided to keep going. And I tell every new parent that I know, like formula is a modern miracle. It is a feminist invention and you should use it anytime you want to. So whichever way you decide to feed your baby is hundred percent cool. What do you look for in a mom friend? That is such an interesting question. You know, I think it's the same thing I look for in any friend. I just want someone to be lazy on the couch and like watch TV with, you know, please don't make me hike. I do not want to go hiking. (laughs) (laughs) Be willing to drink rosé with me and watch like really bad reality TV. That would be like, I want a friend that I can just sort of be completely myself with. And if I feel like I have to be that like perfect mom, I'm not going to be having any fun and I'm not going to be comfortable in that situation. So just like with any friend, I just really want to be my authentic self. And Jess, you do, you exude authenticity. (laughs) Um, I, I think, I mean, I think that's a big draw and appeal to you and your podcast and you know, what you put out there, you just you are yourself. And I think people are drawn to that because they they see that. So it makes sense that that's what you're looking for in in others too. Okay. Best vacation. And I'm wondering if it's going to, if you're going to mention your camping turned, not camping trip that you had recently. I totally was going to. Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So best vacation you've ever taken. It was absolutely the last I don't know, two, three weeks ago, we were going camping with my whole family. They had all gotten condos and we were in a place called Lake Chelan, which if anyone's familiar with Washington, it's like a real touristy, expensive resort town in Eastern Washington. So it's very hot. And I had the brilliant frugal plan of camping about 30 minutes away from where everybody else was staying. So it was myself, Pierce, Penny, and my mother. And we have a little trailer, but it's very, very small. It's not air conditioned or anything like that. So we were hanging out by the pool at my sister's condo. And Pierce jokingly was like, what if we got our own condo? And I just, 
something just switched inside of me where I was like, what if we did? And I just went on my phone. I bought one. I didn't care how much it cost. It was a lot. <laughs> it's not something I would like spent if I were planning the trip before. It was just a spur of the moment thing. And I just did it. I'm so frugal. I never buy anything for myself and we always go camping. And so this was like a big moment for me where I just wanted to do something special for my family. And my mom was there too. And I wanted to make sure she was comfortable. She gets hot flashes. And so camping out in the heat maybe wouldn't have been ideal for her either. So yeah, it wasn't anything like incredible. You know, I've been to Southern France. I've had, you know, wine next to a, (laughs) like I've done it all. But for whatever reason, this silly little condo in Chelan with my family was absolutely the best vacation I've ever been on. It was amazing. Well, and it was like the power of that decision, right? Like you were going to do it one way and then it just ended up being so much better. I think you brought it up on the episode. Like, will we ever try this camping thing again? Or (laughs) (laughs) I have to tell you, we have a camping trip scheduled this coming Monday and that was my fault. I really booked us a lot of camping trips this year. I think I did six in the summer because I was just like, we're going camping and I take full responsibility for that. But I decided this one is going to be our first seven day camping trip and it's really rural. It's on the coast at a place called like near the Ho rainforest. It's beautiful. So it's like basically ocean and rainforest right next to each other. It's beautiful, but seven days is a long time with a toddler. We've never done it before. So again, I was like, I learned from the Chelan trip and I decided after three days camping, we're going to do two days at a resort town nearby in a hotel. And the hotel has like a little mini golf course and a pool. And then we're going to go finish up the trip the last two, three days back camping. And the hotel has like laundry and stuff. So I've learned a little bit from that trip. And I think I like the sort of city and camping experience. I like to be able to do both. I think it's it's fun. You know, i I was telling this to a friend yesterday. If you go from your house to a hotel, that's a downgrade, right? Your your hotel is never going to be as good as your house. If you go from your house to a tent, then to a hotel, you're going to appreciate that hotel so much more. (laughs) It's so true. When I graduated college, my, my partner and I, we backpacked through Central America and we stayed in hostels and I mean, you know, not the nice places, but I, I remember when like my dad would come visit, he would put us up in like the fancy hotel yes. and we just graduated college. So we were young, but like, man, that was the lap luxury. We were like <laughs> <laughs> flying high. We felt like we were you know, totally. And you wouldn't have there. appreciated it so much mm-hmm. if you had already been staying in a hotel, you had to have that hostel experience to truly appreciate the hotel experience. Absolutely. What's one thing you'd like to learn? Just like in a general sense or in a parenting sense? Just, it can be parenting, but just in general. Something I would like to learn. Uh, French. I've always Mm -hmm. wanted to learn how to speak French. Cindy, you know a a bit of French, don't you? I do. Yeah, I took it all through high school and a little bit in college. And I, I just love it. I think it's Is today so the day you teach me to, to I read bringing up baby or bringing mm-hmm. up baby when I was pregnant and I've been to France and I always was sort of like a little bit of a Paris, what do they call it? A Frenchophile, somebody who just really appreciates the, the Parisian lifestyle. And I don't know, I want to learn how to speak French and I think I will someday, maybe after I have a toddler. <laughs> Are you, are you someone that's like, you know how there's people that can learn languages easily. And then there's others that like myself that struggle with it a little bit more. Do, I'd like to go easy? on record to say it does not come easy. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> Nothing that takes consistency comes easily to me, right? Like I'm a very creative person. So I like doing something different every single day. I don't have a lot of that, like just yeah. Consistency. I don't have it. My husband hates it. He loves a routine. I don't, I'm just the destroyer. I am the chaos <laughs> <laughs> discipline. That's the word I was thinking of. I don't have a ton of discipline. That's how you guys are a good balance. Exactly. What do you like to do on a Friday night? Friday night. I just like to be at home with my little family. Honestly. I mean, there are definitely moments where I like to go visit my friends and we play games and we drink wine or whatever, but I like those to be seldom. And I like for more often to just be the three of us. I like our 
cozy home. I like taking her on little excursions. You know, we'll go to like a lavender farm or go to the zoo or a beach or whatever it is. I just, I like doing something new and I like showing Penny something she's never seen before. Yeah. I feel like that response has been kind of the norm over the past year or two. I feel like more and more people have embraced that as a a Friday night. Totally. What what are you reading or watching right now? I am rereading Bringing Up Bebe because it's Mm -hmm. our uh, only podcast book club and watching. (laughs) I have a confession that will not be a surprise to any of my listeners. Uh, I am rewatching Gilmore Girls for the 150,000th time. I think I've seen it so many times. I mean, it's a classic. I'm a rewatcher, you know, like I, yeah. I have so much to do. I have so many irons in the fire. I'm so busy that for me, I just, I like to watch something I've seen a million times in the background, but I am listening to the deep dive podcast with June Diane Raphael and Jessica St. Clair. And I highly recommend that I'm not affiliated with them at all, but it is a beautiful podcast. Now, if you can start reciting the Gilmore Girls, the script, I mean, they are witty and they are fast. <laughs> I have no idea how they memorize their scripts. It's pretty amazing. You, yeah. If you I can, wouldn't say I could do that. <laughs> I know. I'd be super impressed. <laughs> There's a lot of really great music references. I'm a big music fan. I like that. It has sort of that old world vernacular because there's three generations in the show. So there's a lot of like old timey humor and then mixed in with like the early 2000 pop culture. And I watched it in a time in my life where I was, you know, coming of age, I was probably like 12 during its heyday. So it's just, it's a nostalgic show for me. I love it. And you get old school Melissa McCarthy. I mean, what can beat that? (laughs) Before the fame. All right, Jess, last get to know you question. How do you picture your empty nest days? Well, I would like to be a journalist or a writer and I would like to be traveling. That's what I want to do. I don't know if I want to wait until my nest is empty, but I definitely want to wait until she's at least like in school and has her own stuff to do. I don't want to miss any of this early part. I want to do it later when she wants me to be gone. So... (laughs) Uh, I want to be, I don't know. I want to be writing. That's what I want to do. And I want to be traveling. And Pierce is sort of on the fence about traveling. He doesn't love it quite as much as I do, right? Like routine chaos, but maybe some of it together, maybe some of it apart, but I want to be everywhere. And I want to write about like parenting and expectations on women and how birth is different in every country. I want to just like travel around and and talk to people and figure out why things have gone so badly here in the U.S. Yeah, I absolutely love it. I will be first in line to get your book. Um, (laughs) And maybe I'll see you on travels somewhere because that sounds absolutely lovely. I'll meet you in the South of France. Yes. Oh, (laughs) speaking French. We'll all be speaking French. (laughs) (laughs) Jess, through your social media channels and platforms, through your podcast, you are very open with your story being diagnosed with preeclampsia and your daughter, Penny, being born a month early. Would you be willing to share a bit more about your experience of becoming a mother and how it impacted your decision to be one and done? Absolutely. How much time do you have for me? (laughs) Oh my gosh. We're here. We're ready. (laughs) Let her, let her, fly. (laughs) Sure. All right. I'll try to give the short version. I had a pretty uh, normal-ish pregnancy. I, at the time, thought I'd be doing it several times. And uh, she had a couple little things going on at the anatomy scan, nothing too crazy. My mental health wasn't excellent, I would say. I was very anxious. I have always struggled with anxiety. So I was totally wigged out on the whole pregnancy situation. It wasn't like a comfortable experience for me personally. And we were getting extra scans because of some stuff that was going on with her and just what felt like randomly, but looking back, maybe wasn't so random. I went into my 35 week scan and I was diagnosed with preeclampsia and sent to the hospital and told, you know, you're not going to leave here until you have this baby. And as it turns out, I had been sick for a while. And with preeclampsia, it's so sneaky. You don't know, but I had been very, very tired and swollen and it was summertime. So I just thought these were typical pregnancy things. 
And for some people, I'm sure they are, but for me, it was much more dire. So we were admitted and we spent five days just trying to stabilize my blood pressure and induce me. I was not a candidate for a C-section, even though I asked for one like a million times, because I think looking back, I'd love to go talk to the doctors and, and get a refresh on all of this. But from what I understand, it wasn't safe for me to have a C-section. So I had this very long drawn out induction where the medications were affecting her heart rate. My contractions were, you know, causing D cells. My blood pressure would skyrocket, then come back down and they would have to be constantly monitoring that. So I spent about five days being constantly monitored using a, a blood pressure cuff. It would go off, I think every hour, maybe every hour and a half. And then I also had the heart rate monitor around my stomach. So I just wasn't sleeping. Like, how could you, I was woken up at least every hour by some alarm and some frantic looking nurse running in. And finally she was born. She was about four and a half pounds. We were sent home the next day, even though she had some jaundice, they were basically just like, Oh, just make sure she goes in the sun. And by the time we went to go see the pediatrician for that, like early, early follow-up, she was dehydrated and she had horrible jaundice and we had to immediately be sent back to the emergency room. And then we spent about three weeks in the NICU with her various health concerns. So I think some of my story could have been prevented by perhaps less of an emphasis on breastfeeding, which is why at the top of the show, I was sharing that my relationship with breastfeeding is a little bit confusing. I was told to breastfeed on demand and to express hand express but she should have been on formula. She was dehydrated. I was too sick. I was too tired. I had been in the hospital for five days. There was no way I could produce enough for her to get over her jaundice. And they didn't send me home with so much as a sample of formula. They just, it just wasn't even brought up. And I think it's because the type of hospital it is, if you say you want to breastfeed, they basically only tell you about breastfeeding. They don't even bring up formula. It's something to do with like how much they get paid and it's a ridiculous system, but essentially that coupled with um, a heart issue she ended up being diagnosed with caused us to stay in the NICU for a long time. And while we were there, my preeclampsia came back and I didn't want to go to the hospital. I was having like the visual disturbances, but I didn't want to leave her because she was, it, it was a life-threatening situation for her. And I didn't quite recognize how life-threatening it was for me as well. So long story short, we finally get home and she's about a month old and Pierce immediately had to go back to work. You know, he had planned to take a month off, assuming that entire month wouldn't have been spent in hospitals. So there I was sort of just solo. And I think that must've been September. And then I sort of was starting to get through stuff and I was in therapy and we were working through my PTSD and I was diagnosed with PTSD and hypervigilance and all these things. And then when, you know, COVID hit. And so I think I was talking about being one and done while still in the hospital. I was like, I don't know if I can do this again. My doctor said, you know, my risk of preeclampsia coming back is high, especially because I had it postpartum. It's just probably always going to be at least a little bit of an issue. My blood pressure is something I'm always going to have to keep an eye on. And I didn't know if I could do it again, but then sort of the PTSD, the anxiety and COVID that just sealed the deal. I was just never going to be able to be mentally prepared to have another pregnancy. I mean, I already was anxious for the first one, but having that sort of looming fear of preeclampsia over my head for another pregnancy, both mentally and physically, I cannot do it. So I'm in this weird gray area of like by choice, not by choice. And as it turns out, many of us are in that same realm. This episode is sponsored by The Flourish Market, where every product has a bigger purpose, just like you. The Flourish Market currently partners with over 200 brands that work all over the world, including right here at home in the United States, to drive positive social change. 
I love walking around their beautiful store in downtown Raleigh. They're so welcoming and have incredible stylists that are always happy to help you find the perfect outfit or piece to complete your wardrobe. They also let you host in-store parties with a group of your girlfriends, which is so much fun. I can always find a ton of great gifts, both in-store and on their online shop. <clears throat> and yes, some of those gifts are even for other people. Wink, wink. We invite you to use your purchasing power for good this holiday season. Supporting causes and change makers creating sustainable impact. Go check out the gorgeous clothing and adorable gifts offered at the Flourish Market and online at theflourishmarket.com. And rest easy knowing that every purchase is serving a greater purpose. I'm so curious when you said that she was slightly jaundiced when she was born and they went ahead and sent her home with you. Had they mentioned anything about a Billy Rubin light? Our daughters, both of our daughters were jaundiced and they both laid on this Billy Rubin light wrapped, we swaddled and it was, it was pretty tough. Yeah. Did, had they ever mentioned anything like that? To you know, you? I was actually familiar with jaundice because I have a lot of nieces and nephews and a couple of them had jaundice and they told me, so her levels were at the medium point. So they weren't high enough to merit the light. So they, like I said, they just basically said, get her out in the sunshine, which I mean, it was summer, but also she was a newborn and I, I tried. I remember there's pictures of me like holding her outside. Like, can you even put sunscreen on a baby? I don't know what I'm doing, but <laughs> they dropped the ball with me, you know, and I'm not mad at anybody. It's just in modern day medicine, they don't see the whole person. And this is true within the parenting space and, and outside of it as well. They don't see that I was just done with a traumatic birth. They see me today. They don't see that she's four and a half pounds and I had magnesium in my system when she was born or that she had been measuring small my entire pregnancy with her. They don't see any of that. They see her as she is that moment. And they, they just, maybe they don't have the capacity maybe they don't have the training. They probably don't have enough people on the floor, right? They're always understaffed, but nobody saw our whole picture. So they sent us home. And honestly, the entire time in the hospital, nobody ever really even mentioned that my birth was traumatic. I had never even heard of the concept of having a traumatic birth. You know, I would assume a traumatic birth meant, I don't know, like a hemorrhage situation or, or something. I, I just pictured it being different, but being told for five days straight that you might have a stroke any moment and that your baby isn't tolerating your contractions, which is a, a very interesting way of putting it. Being told that for five days while trying to just stay awake because you're on so many different medications and, and wondering if you're going to make it through this, that's trauma. There is a lot of trauma there and it, it's just not even brought up. So that's part of why I was talking about Eventually, I'd love to write a book. I want to talk about why it's so different here. Why don't we have midwives that come home with us and, and make sure things are going okay? You know, why are we expected to just wait six weeks to ever talk to our doctor about what, what just happened to our bodies? Like they give more aftercare for a knee surgery than they do for a birth. It's, it's nuts. It, it truly is. And the term birth trauma you know, it, it has that connotation to it, as you were saying that we, we think it's this big thing. It has to involve this very extreme situation, but I think it's important for a lot of moms to know and to remember that it's defined by you, right. you know, what was traumatic to you? What was an experience that you had during labor and delivery? If that was traumatic to you, then it was a traumatic experience. And I think a lot more mothers have dealt with that than we are even aware of in, in our society. And it's for all the reasons you just stated. Right. Um, in our show, we call it gray area birth trauma, which is a, it was coined by one of our listeners. And they said, I don't know if this was traumatic, but it felt traumatic to me. It's like, I have gray area birth trauma and it's like, yeah, it, it could even be as simple as things didn't go as according to your birth plan or your doula didn't show up or your mom was 
being annoying or your mother-in-law was like, you know, focusing more on your husband than she was on you, whatever it was, if you felt traumatized by the experience, then it was birth trauma. You know, I think we need to give people a little bit more license to talk about what happened during that experience for them. Absolutely. Speaking of your show, only you, a one and done podcast, and you might, will have to correct me if I have these numbers wrong, but you've reached the top 50 worldwide parenting podcasts. And I believe I heard you say recently that it was ranked in the top 14 parenting podcasts in the U S is that correct? I believe those numbers are correct. Yes. We're always in the top 50, but one or two weeks ago, we were in the top 10 for like a full week. It was crazy. That is amazing. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Uh, That is true. It's truly, that is such an amazing success. And in such a quick amount of time, you you've been around, I think you're getting ready. You said to celebrate your one year mark. So why do you think only you is resonating with so many parents? I think that it's a topic that is woefully under-discussed, first of all. I remember when I first decided I would only be having one, I would listen to podcasts and I would listen to things like The Longest Shortest Time or The Birth Hour or these you know, podcasts that talk about people's birth experiences. And I would hear the traumatic ones. These are, this is after my birth. And I would just be sitting there waiting, hoping that they would say, and I'm one and done and I'm not doing it again. I, I needed some validation, but they usually didn't. Either it wasn't really discussed or they had a second one and it was fine or whatever it was. Nobody was really talking about making the decision not to do it again. And I felt very alone. And so I tried to search for a podcast and there was not one out there. And I just, my personality, I just made one, right? Like I was just like, oh, no problem. I'll just make it. It's all good. But I think it's resonating because nobody was talking about it yet. And it just happened to be a timing thing. I don't think Pierce and I have like the magic podcasting thing. I think that this conversation needed to happen and it needed to be by someone who wasn't afraid of the backlash. And I'm not, I don't care. You know, I get messages all the time. People are like, what about my kids? You think I should have less? You think I shouldn't have my children? That doesn't even make sense. People are so tied to the idea that everyone else's family has to look like theirs, that they can't just appreciate the differences. So I think it's a stigmatized subject. It causes people to be called selfish. I've been called selfish more times than I can count. People tell me that I don't like being a mother. There's a lot of stuff that gets thrown at me. And I think I'm just the right person because I just don't care. It does not phase me. Why would I, why would I mind? They can say whatever they want because I know when people insult others, it has so much more to do with them than it does with me. They don't even know me, so they can say whatever they want. So yeah, that's what I attribute the success to. Really, it's just nobody was talking about it yet. Well, and we are a one and done family and I, that's how I found you. That's how I started following you. And my partner, Noah and I, we've been waffling a bit for, you know, she's four. And I think it was really when she was three. So really in the past year that we're like, okay, we're, we're, we're pretty sure that we're one and done. You know, there's a variety of reasons for it, but it did help immensely to find you and your Instagram account and your podcast and to know Cause it can feel very lonely, you know, yeah. when a friend announces that they're pregnant or you start meeting up with friends who now have two and three kids, it changes, it changes the dynamic. And all of a sudden you start questioning everything about your decisions and, you know, people I've, I remember laying on a massage table and the massage therapist telling me that I was selfish and how could I do that to my child to just have one as I'm getting a massage and you know, it's just, it's mind blowing, but it is very much a stigma in society. If you're having one child that it, it is selfish and how could you do that to them? So your podcast for me has, has been very much a blessing and just that sense of community knowing that you're not alone. That means so much. Thank you. Really. I truly just get as much from this community as they get from me. It wasn't, I don't have anything to teach. All I have is the ability to bring people together. And I'm just honored that all of you have chosen to uh, be on this journey with me. I said this in another podcast. I don't even remember which, but I was saying that 
a big part of podcasting is like hosting a dinner party. I, my job is to create an environment that people want to be in. My job is to bring people together who have things in common to start conversations, to make sure everyone's having a good time and to have good conversations. So, I mean, that's my whole job. And I don't really appreciate podcasts where I'm being preached to. So I don't have one. (laughs) I have a two-year-old, like, what do I know about parenting? Nothing. So I'm just really happy to be here in the conversation with everybody. So intrigued about what you said before, where you said that you, you don't care about what other people think. Chrissy and I speak to a lot of moms. And one of the biggest things that we hear is moms being concerned about the pressure from other, other people around them, worried what other people think, trying to keep up with other people, social media. How did you get to that point? Was it something that's just intrinsically you or did how did you get to the point where you found that piece I I think that's a great question I think a lot of it has to do with therapy I'm a big proponent of therapy I attribute a lot of my confidence to it I am someone who struggles with anxiety so I know when people don't like what I'm saying I'm very attuned to it but I've spent my life I think trying to please others and what you realize when you go to therapy is that when you are really, really desperate for approval from other people, it's because you're lacking self-approval. So through that journey, I've just learned that like nobody else's approval is meaningful. It's I need to like me. And when someone in your life is questioning your choices or putting you down or, or whatever the case may be, it has so much more to do with them. You know, maybe they're feeling insecure about their choices. Maybe they want your life to look like theirs because they need a mirror. It has nothing to do with me. And so I think therapy has been huge where I I can just kind of walk through life knowing that as long as I'm okay with what I'm doing, as long as I trust myself and I'm living in a way that I think reflects who I am and what I truly believe that if other people disagree, it doesn't matter. So beautiful. I'm really grateful that you shared that. I think that will touch a lot of moms that listen to our episode. So just like us, having talked to a lot of moms, you've talked to a lot of one and done parents. What have you found to be the top reasons a family may decide to be one and done? And there's more to this, actually. (laughs) What stigma (laughs) do you see many one and done families facing? As far as the top reason, I'm not sure I know of one. I think it's so multifaceted and it really depends on the family. We do hear from a lot of folks who have struggled with infertility. And I think that can be a huge reason. Infertility can be traumatic. It can be painful. It can be expensive. Actually, it it is expensive. So I know that infertility is a, a big driving force. And it's part of the reason too that I advocate so strongly because Anytime you're calling a, an only child parent selfish, it's kind of a slap in the face to people who have lost their children or to people who have tried and failed to have a baby or to someone who worked so hard and spent so much money to have this one kid and you can't even be satisfied with that. Like it doesn't pass your test. I just, I can't even imagine. I have not been in those shoes. So for me, that brings out like my mama bear instincts, or I just want to defend them to the death. Like I will have that conversation in the grocery store. I don't even care (laughs) because maybe that person won't say it to someone who really does not need to hear that right now. So I would say loss and infertility would be a big one. And aside from that, I would say many of our listeners are American and America isn't totally set up to support families. So finances, the housing crisis, the lack of support for, for parents who work, you know, having no maternity leave resources or, or anything like that. I mean, that stuff matters. And a lot of people simply can't comfortably afford more than one. And even that first one was a stretch, myself included. Pierce and I are not high earners. So I would imagine a lot of people maybe are thinking about being one and done, but they're feeling like it's selfish. And they're considering having two, even though it will make them stretch very thin. So I think a lot of people find us as they're grappling with that. 
as far as the stigma they're facing, I think a lot of people are worried their kids are going to be lonely. It's a beautiful thing, right? Like we love our kids so much. I, I love Penny like crazy. And the thought of her having a lonely childhood, it would break my heart. I, I absolutely don't want that for her. The thing about adult-only children that I've spoken to is many of them say, I loved my childhood and I had a great time. My parents were so present. We had all kinds of cool uh, vacations together. And, you know, I always felt very taken care of and I was safe and we were like the three musketeers and blah, blah, blah. But there are only children who say I was very, very lonely. And one common thread, certainly not for everyone, but if you dig a little bit deeper into those only children who really, really resented their childhoods, it's not so much about the lack of siblings. It's, it's about the parenting. A sibling shouldn't exist to be a caregiver to a child. If you needed a sibling to lean on because your childhood was traumatic, that shouldn't be the fault of your mother deciding not to have a baby. That's a lack of parenting. You know, something went wrong there. And I think it's a really easy scapegoat to say, I was an only child and that's why I was miserable. When a lot of things can go wrong in your childhood and you can have five brothers and sisters and still be lonely. So I think that it's a conversation that needs to be had that you weren't lonely because you're an only child. You were lonely because your parent wasn't emotionally available to you. A sibling may have helped but it would have been a placeholder for the parent that should have been there. Yeah, absolutely. I am an only child, an adult only child. And I actually grew up just my mom and me. Hmm. And I was always blessed with the opportunity to have friends over. And I mean, it was definitely a situation where I made my family and I've always through my whole life, I've been able to make my family. So that's not to say I haven't had moments of loneliness, I remember as, I don't know, a 13 year old, maybe a little younger, I asked my mom to make me an older brother. I specifically wanted an older brother because I wanted to flirt with his cute friends and, you know, <laughs> and she informed me that that wasn't possible, but <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, <laughs> I, so like, I think most only children have that moment where they, yes, I, I see all of these siblings and I want that, but I, I think the parents very much have it the power to give the child the ability to foster relationships and friendships and, and really choose that family. That's something that I've gone through in my life with that mentality. I get to choose who I spend my time with. It's not dictated by, you know, family bonds or, or anything like that. And my daughter has no extended family, no cousins, no. Um, so, so much of what you're saying about the loneliness piece resonates and has brought me to tears many times. And, is something I struggle with, but I try to remember all the reasons of why we made this decision and why it's right for our family. On that note, why do you love being a one and done family? What, what are the, the pros and the benefits of it that you see for your family? You know, for me, uh, not going through that postpartum period, that's a big plus. That was not cool. And not doing it with a toddler, that sounds fantastic. I am very, very much happy about that. But I realize that those are fleeting moments, right? Like a lot of people are like, oh, it just, it's a couple years that's hard. And then the rest is gravy. Fine. What I really love is I love that there's two of us and one of her, you know, like it gives me the freedom to go be who I want to be while she still has the attention of her dad and vice versa. It allows us to both be present for things that we might have to be divided for in other circumstances. It gives us this beautiful opportunity to be this three musketeers, triangle, like tight knit little family that I didn't have growing up. I'm one of five and uh, I didn't have really any one-on-one -on -one time with my parents and that's fine. I'm not over here saying never have five kids, right? That's, that was my journey and it's cool, but I love the idea that she's going to know me, you know, and I'm going to know her and I'm excited about that. And I just, I think it's really, really fun. I love 
that I can have these sort of peaceful, relaxing moments with her. And I love that I don't have to worry about having another little one and planning for all of that. Like I can kind of just plan around her. And that's why, you know, only kids that are called spoiled. Maybe she is. She's definitely spoiled with my attention and my time and my resources. And I'm not going to apologize for that. I think it's wonderful. It is. It is wonderful. And I think there's something to be said for that quiet time, that bond, that the three musketeers, as you say, I remember going to, you know, like my uncle's house where they had three kids and it was loud and it was fun. And I was so grateful to come home (laughs) to my quiet home (laughs) where it was just me, you know, like it's fun for the moment, but then you, you do just kind of, you get used to your space and your bubble and there's something special about that and your time with your parents. Okay. So I think you had a post about this recently and I, I just, if there's any one and done parents listening, I think this could be really valuable. What are some of your go-to responses when someone passes judgment or voices an unacceptable comment about being one and done? So I have a favorite and I think I made a post about it. It is, there has to be ways to socialize my kid that don't include my uterus. I think we can get her some friends. <laughs> I love that is that. by far my favorite. I love slipping my uterus into a conversation. Always great. Always loving that. And it's a great reminder that, you know, when you're telling a person they need to have another child, you are dictating what they do with their body. Stay in your lane, please. This isn't about you. Like she's not, fine. not your business. <laughs> it's really not. Do you want to have a conversation about my uterus today? Like let's. I didn't know we were there on a personal level because I have some thoughts on your life that I would like to share. So, you know, if we're going to go there, let's go there. I just, I like to really throw it back to them to be like, what you're saying is incredibly personal. And I realize as a society, we haven't called people out on it enough. That's going to change today with me. This conversation is not happening. It's, you're not a part of the decision-making process. You're not having this child. You're not paying for the IVF. You're not paying for the adoption. I don't know what your deal is, but it's none of your business. I think the sassiness, a little bit of humor, and uh, just a lot of confidence is key to ending this conversation. And I know other people have different ways. Some people will get real graphic about their birth story. Love that. Not for me personally. It's a little triggering for me. So I don't like to go there, but if you're, if you're cool, that's a great way to do it. You know, start, start from the beginning, like, you know, just give them all the gory details of your birth story. I also think if somebody, if it's somebody closer to you, and this happens a lot, we hear from people where it's like their mother-in-law or like a sister or somebody who has multiple kids. And they're just like, you need to do it. My kids love having siblings. I think it's really powerful to just ask for boundaries. When you use the word boundary, people kind of have to like reflect and be like, oh, I'm kind of crossing a line here. And if they choose to get angry, then you were right to put up a boundary. But just simply saying, I'm going to put a boundary up that you don't comment on this choice I've made. It's really, it's not a you and me decision. It's just mine. I don't like you saying those things in front of my child. I think it perpetuates a lot of really damaging stereotypes. So if you don't like this decision I've made, that's fine. But the boundary is that we're not going to talk about it anymore. If you can't respect that boundary, I am going to have to remove myself from the situation for my own mental health, but also to protect my child, because what you're saying is both untrue and hurtful. So just kind of like drawing that line. And I know it's uncomfortable, but if that person can't stop saying things like that, then they probably have issues with boundaries in all kinds of ways. So maybe you're the person to teach them. Those are amazing. <laughs> I admire you even more. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I spend a lot of time thinking about this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, your, your feedback and w- what you said was just awesome. Loved it. Thank you. For many, one of the biggest challenges of being one and done is the constant questioning, them questioning more of themselves. 
we talked a little bit about this with Chrissy mentioning that she has questions when it comes to loneliness. And we talked through that a little bit, but this would especially come up as friends announce second and third pregnancies. A person would start saying, is this the right decision? Am I making a mistake? Do you ever experience those twinges of doubt? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I'm not even saying I will never have a second. I've always said that I'm leaving that door open for adoption, for fostering. I don't think the door for me to have another biological pregnancy is open. I just, I don't think that that would work for me. But if I really start feeling called to expanding my family, I will make it happen. And and I, I don't feel any guilt about that. I, I think it can be a lot of pressure when you tell yourself, no, never, door is closed. There's nothing you can do about it. And for me, I think it's okay to leave this open-ended. If I start feeling differently, then I'm going to explore that. I'm never going to tell myself you can't feel a certain way. So the beautiful thing is that life changes all the time. And if a baby arrived on my doorstep tomorrow and somebody was like, this is yours now, I probably would take it, right? Because like, I would want to protect that baby and it's not really something I would have wanted, but if it was literally dropped on my doorstep, I'd be like, well, something was telling me I needed to have this kid. So I guess I'm going to do it. I, I don't think we should really force ourselves to be 100% on one side of this coin if we're not ready to be there. If you are, that's awesome. And this question doesn't even apply to you, but I would say, leave that door cracked. You know, don't force yourself to be on one side of it if you're not ready. I think that you'll find a lot of grace for your own emotions if you do that. I think you need to allow yourself to really, truly feel things. And if you're just trying to shut off thoughts or feelings, then then that's that's going to be painful. Yeah, you spoke um, just with what you said. That was a little bit of feedback and, and advice for parents on how they can manage and move past those doubts. But do you have anything more that you'd like to say regarding the advice for helping parents move past any doubts mm. that they may be feeling and just fully embrace the one and done life? I, I just don't think that's, I don't think that's my role. I wouldn't say it's my business. I try not to tell any parent what to do. But if they are truly in a situation where all of their options are gone and we do hear from people who like maybe their spouse is fully one and done. So they just kind of have to get on board with it. And the choice has been taken away from them. And if that is the case, I would definitely try to remind myself that firstly, the stereotypes, but only children are not true. There's no, there's no facts, there's no evidence and if you really dig into the research, you're not doing anything wrong. So I would say first and foremost, you know, do some digging, find the facts. If you're the kind of person where that will help you, then I, I think that the internet will be your friend because you're going to find a lot of evidence that it's going to be fine. And secondly, I would say just do your best to be in the moment. I think a lot of people have a hard time just enjoying where they are. We're always wanting to move forward. We're always wanting to change things or be better or be bigger. You know, we can't enjoy our house because we think it should be bigger. We can't enjoy our room because we want to remodel it. We can't enjoy this moment because it could be better if we just had this. But just trying to be here right now and enjoy exactly what you have can be really freeing in so many aspects of your life. And I think really just trying to put down that inclination that you always have to be striving for more uh, can be a really, really empowering thing. Jess, are you sure you're not a therapist? (laughs) (laughs) I have been asked that a lot. And yes, I'm sure I didn't even go to college. So nobody would allow me to be a therapist. (laughs) Uh, Well, I mean, this has been a therapy session for me. I mean, I have so many like one-liners running through my head that I'm going to sit down and unpack later, uh, because you, you left me with a lot to think about. So, <laughs> well, thank you. Of course. We're going to go in a completely different direction, but you can let your therapist side come out again. Okay. 
your partner, Pierce, is the co-host of the podcast with you. And you guys have a wonderful rapport together. I always love listening to your banter back and forth. Has it always been that way? And, you know, how has, we know parenting is tough. How has parenting changed your relationship? How do you manage parenting, living together and working on this podcast together? What relationship advice do you have for our listeners? Hmm. Well, you know, Pierce and I got married in a fever. We have known each other since middle school, but we started dating at I think I was 25 and we got married within a year. Like we were engaged within six months, married six months after that. And then I was pregnant six months after that. So we were just like, boom, boom, boom. And I think part of that is because I'm the kind of person who I just know what I want and I go after it. And I wanted him and I went after it and I got it. (laughs) But he is the kind of person that's just so relaxed and just happy and he's so cool and easygoing so we're this like yin and yang there's this duality for us where I'm pushing and he's sort of like hey maybe you should relax like hey let's let's calm down a little bit so I think our rapport has always been like that that's just our dynamic where I'm the go-getter and he's sort of like the one who takes care of me one of my favorite memories of becoming parents together is when we were in the hospital, I was feeding Penny. I think I was giving her a bottle and I had pumped. So I was tired. So I'm feeding her and he's feeding me (laughs) with a spoon. And, and actually just this morning, we had that same situation where I was laying down, he was rubbing my back and I was rubbing Penny's back. So it's like, he takes care of me. I take care of her. That's our dynamic. And then, you know, I do circle back and take care of him. Right. But I think our relationship from the very start to today has been the same, where we're both authentically ourselves. We both recognize our roles in this marriage, which is like, I'm steering the ship. He is the one who's like making sure everything's okay. And like, perhaps that we slow down every so often. (laughs) I don't know if I have any advice. I'm still, I've only been married a few years. I would say, um, go to therapy. That's my advice. My husband and I have done tons of therapy together. We're lucky that our therapist is willing to see me as well as both of us. And this is the advice I give to my friends. If every fight ends up bringing up some old thing, like that fight can never just be that fight. It's a much bigger fight. Then we need to be tackling that. That needs to be solved because I think a lot of people start out fighting about the dishes and then end up fighting about something very different than the dishes. So like we need to take care of that bigger thing, that elephant in the room, whatever it is. And usually that just takes a little bit of therapy. I like you again. Like (laughs) (laughs) I love therapy. I love that you go after it. You're great. <laughs> Thank you. I really take charge in life. You know, I'm just like, if I want something. I'm, I'm going to get it. And that's, I was going to say that earlier about the, like writing a book or being a journalist thing. I was going to be like, and I want it. So I'm sure it will happen eventually. <laughs> like it just, it just will. I, I really, I want to raise Penny in that way too, where she truly believes whatever she wants in this life she can get. And I was lucky to have a mother who encouraged that in me too. It's just fantastic. Fantastic. What has been the most challenging lesson or shift for you in your motherhood journey so far? I know that we've talked a lot about challenges and whatnot, but is there any specific lesson or shift that stands out to you? I didn't know that a big part of parenting is reparenting. I didn't know that so much of my old trauma was going to be coming up. I didn't know that I would have to be like, navigating what happened in my childhood as I create a childhood for her. Uh, I had a very traumatic childhood. I've talked about it on my show a little bit, but it's hard for me to create a happy childhood out of thin air because I've never seen one. So there are moments for me that are confusing. I have to be constantly parenting myself through her. It brings up a lot. And I would say that's a big challenge is that I have to reckon with some stuff all the time. And I also have to let that not 
you know, get into her situation. I have to make sure that I'm okay. And that has been a lot of work. I've really had to come to terms with some stuff and it can be a little bit triggering when you're parenting someone that has a remarkably different and or better childhood than you had. It can be confusing. It can be just traumatic at times. So going through that has been tricky. Very well said. I think that even if you have an absolute beautiful upbringing and life, you are put in the position where you have to learn. You have to reparent yourself essentially, because thinking about it, everyone's got some sort of baggage or, you know, your parents were raised by people that were broken and, and whatnot. And it just makes its way down the line. And you have to say, it stops with me. I'm going to end this, this line of care or lack of, and so very well said. Yeah. It's that generational trauma. Yeah. Jess, what message do you think every mother should hear? I think every mother should hear that they are doing great. If you are sitting there listening to a parenting podcast, how great are you? Look at you. You're amazing. I mean, you're going to mess up sometimes and that's fine. Apologize to your kid. Always let your kid know you are a human who makes mistakes and be vulnerable with them. Show them who you really are. Don't try to be the perfect parent to them all the time. That There's no value in that. Also, there's nothing like inherently special about being a parent. It's just you happen to have a kid. You need to show them that you are just a human person who deserves love, who can be vulnerable, who apologizes when they mess up. And if you're trying to do that stuff, everything else doesn't matter. You're doing great. The TV, the food, the sleep whatever it is, it doesn't matter. The perfectly imperfect aspects of motherhood, right? Absolutely. I I love it. Jess, we have to go. I know we're like across the the nation from each other, but we we gotta meet for coffee or something. (laughs) I was thinking the same thing. I was like, is it really awkward for me to be like, can I be your friend? (laughs) (laughs) This happens a lot. Of course we can be friends. Yes. You are such a delight. And I genuinely mean it when I say this conversation, I I took a lot out of it. What you say resonates a lot on multiple levels in my personal life, but I, you had a lot of great thoughts and little nuggets of wisdom that you shared that I think are going to resonate with a lot of people. So thank you for spending some time with us today. Absolutely. That's very kind. And I really appreciate what you both do. I think this space that you're creating is pretty incredible. And I can't wait to continue to follow. Thanks so much, Jess. Jess shared so many important insights in today's episode. I appreciate her candor and authenticity so much, and I'm truly blown away by her confidence. I wish I could absorb some of that through my earbuds. Here are three of our favorite takeaways from our time with Jess today. One, it is so important to remember when interacting with others, we never know their full history, their story, their background, their journey to get to where they are now. It is never our business to comment on someone else's family choices, regardless of how close we are to the individual. As Jess said, people are so tied to the idea that everyone else's family has to look like theirs, that they can't just appreciate the differences. It's time we collectively start appreciating the differences in how individuals choose to create their family. If someone comments on our family choices, it's up to us to decide how to respond in a way that we are comfortable with and feels authentic to us. But it is so important to set that boundary and let others know when they've crossed the line. And one last important reminder in this area, nobody else's approval is meaningful. It's your approval that matters. When someone in your life is questioning your choices or putting you down, it has so much more to do with them. Two, Jess shared the term gray area birth trauma, which was coined by one of her listeners. They said, I don't know if this was traumatic, 
but it felt traumatic to me. This is something we've spoken to at length with a number of our expert guests and is such an important reminder about the individual nature of each of our birth experiences. If you felt traumatized by the experience, then it was a birth trauma. People need to feel comfortable speaking about their experience and should never feel invalidated in doing so. We also touched on the importance of therapy. And as we discuss all the time on this podcast, therapy is always an important tool to help navigate through traumatic events and difficult life experiences. Three, it is so important to note here that the research simply does not back up the idea that only children are selfish, lonely, and spoiled. As Jess mentions, many adult-only children share how much they've loved their childhood. Simultaneously, you will find many that did not enjoy their childhood and did find it to be a very lonely experience. If you dig a little bit deeper into those only children who really resented their childhood, it's not about the lack of siblings. It's about the lack of parenting. A sibling shouldn't exist to be a caregiver to another child. On the flip side of the coin, many adults who grew up in a large family have great relationships with their siblings, but just as many don't. The idea of having another child in order to give your kid a playmate or to make sure they won't be lonely as an adult or to ensure that they will have help when it comes time to care for you as you age, it just doesn't hold merit. The truth is you and your partner need to come to a mutual decision about what works best for you and your family. This is your body, your family, your life. It's up to you and no one else to decide what you want that life to look like. And your reasoning is all your own. You don't owe an explanation to anyone. Thanks for listening today. Hi, five friends. We had so much fun with you. Be sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. And don't forget to leave a review. We love hearing what you have to say. Until next time, stay true to you.